0: This is Pop Culture Confidential, and I'm Christina yerling biru Hey everyone, welcome to Pop Culture Confidential, a part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. The Norwegian romantic comedy, The Worst Person in the World, directed and co-written by my guest Joachim Trier, made a splash at Cannes this year. The Guardian called it an instant classic. The fantastic lead actress, Renate Rensve, won Best Actress for her performance as Julie, and it's also Norway's Oscar submission. But mostly, for me, a lifelong fan of the romantic comedy, it's a stunning addition to a often quite difficult genre. A genre that can be misunderstood, while when done well, shows us the existential mess that life can be and the emotional politics of a relationship with humor and drama, and often in a magical city like Manhattan or Paris, or in this case, in an Oslo as you have never seen it before. The Worst Person in the World has so many of these rom-com moments, plus it gives us a glimpse of some of the existential battles in life, hard choices, and the difficulty of meeting someone when you haven't quite figured yourself out yet. I met up with director Joachim Trier in Stockholm, Sweden at a hotel where he was doing press for the film and just about to receive the Visionary Award at the Stockholm Film Festival. The worst person in the world is about Julie. She's just turning 30 and in the midst of an existential crisis, changing majors from doctor to photographer. She has an older boyfriend, Axel, played by Anders Danielson Lee, who wants to have kids and settle down. One evening at a wedding party, she meets Avend, and they have what's commonly known in the rom-com genre as a meet-cute. That's a scene where two people who will eventually form a romantic relationship meet for the first time. This meet-cute is a fantastic set piece, where these characters who obviously have incredible chemistry decide that this evening they will test the limits of what it is to be unfaithful. You can do anything or everything without crossing that line. Well, for what happens next, you'll have to see the movie. Let's go, Pada.
1: Okay.
2: Okay. Hold it. Hold it. Are you okay, Trula? you okay? okay? No. I said goodbye to me. I looked at
0: and I began to cry I leave my things behind for all to see So, Joaquim thank, thank you so much understand. for joining me.
2: It's such a pleasure, thank you. We're Bye. meeting
0: in Stockholm.
2: Yes, we are. Because
0: you're getting a big prize here at the Film Festival, the Visionary Award. Congratulations.
2: Thank you so much.
0: It was kind of rom-com-y when I walked here today, actually. Really nice weather and I took a coffee and I was like, feeling very much for doing this interview. <laughs> oh, I'm happy. Great.
2: No, no, I guess uh, the worst person in the world, my most recent film, somehow, is my strange take on the rom-com. You know, I, I, I respect that genre, so I take that as a compliment when good, you say good.
0: that. I think I want to talk about the emotional politics and everything that mm. is so interesting in your movie and, and in the genre itself. but. But I felt so comforted by the film because you used a lot of the tropes or chestnuts or whatever you want to call it that I really adore, the the jazz standard, the happy couple montage. And my absolute favorite is when the beautiful characters work at a bookstore or coffee shop but still have really wonderful apartments in the world's most expensive city. (laughs) (laughs) But tell me a little bit about the most sort of... um, the lighter tropes of the rom-com that you really love and that you wanted to have in this movie.
2: So what I really like about the rom-com, I guess, and you see this traditionally, you see it in the uh, great work of, let's say, George Cukor, The Philadelphia Story, is the strong female lead, you know, like Katherine Hepburn and... Mm -hmm. The, the smart rom-coms don't fall into the trap of it becoming just a woman needs a man to be someone, which you obviously want to avoid. But like in the Philadelphia story, as an example, the choice between the different men that present themselves to her are existential choices, choices where she has to negotiate who she is in her life, who does she want to be, you know, and, and who, how will she let herself be revealed, as we all are, in love relationships you know in a very rational time when we all can have learned to put language to describe ourselves at a party or what do you do who are you you know actually we are exposed to our vulnerability through love so i think when people think that rom-coms are fun and light yes they should be that's those are the tropes why we come back to this genre but it's also a serious existential way of looking at humans so it's that doubleness i'm curious about
0: and Julie is such a fantastic character, which Renata does very well. And, and I was thinking, um, she kind of reminds me of Diane Keaton, by the way. How would you describe the demands on the world today, on that generation? I guess we can't really count ourselves today. No, no,
2: I'm in my 40s, so I guess I, I see it a little bit from an older perspective. Um, at least in Norway and uh, the rather affluent middle class that's been expanding over the last 30 years, I see a lot of opportunities, a lot of sense of freedom, uh, free education, um, a lot of things that I'm, I'm, everyone's obviously grateful for. But I see as a flip side also people who feel that they're not able to live up to the expectations of finding a partner at the right time or when when are you supposed to have children when you also kind of expect from yourself and society expect that you have a, a super career and successful and you're even supposed to explore like four or five different things before you decide and you know I, I've just observed the, the sense of sense of failure that a lot of people feel living up to the standards that we now abide to in a way so there is that aspect to this film as well, even though it's it's I try to treat it with a sense of levity and I, I still take it seriously
0: and and she's afraid of how to put this the irreversibility of a choice that that if she she wants to get out before it's too late, mm-hmm. is this something you yourself have experienced
2: sure I, I mean you know the, the strange thing and in, in, I guess I make all these films now about people who don't know what they want to do with their life. I knew that I wanted to Which make movies really since like I was a kid. <laughs> But that was the only thing I knew. I think everything else has been a journey, you know, and, uh, and I think um, the film also deals a lot with the question of time. Mm-hmm. We want to believe and we're kind of brought up to believe by our kind parents that time is infinite, but it's not. And a part of this kind of, I, I call it a coming of age story for grown ups because a coming of age story 20 30 years ago would probably be about someone who was 16 or 20. Right. But now I think it's equally The midlife
0: crisis starts earlier. Yeah, yeah, it. yeah, exactly.
2: It's, it's, it's <laughs> eternal, it seems. So, you yeah. know, so you could you could easily make this as, as the film is about someone who's turning 30. Um, and I think time is not infinite and I think Julie needs to negotiate all her dreams and, and passions that that I sympathize with. I like her as a character. I I I, I really enjoyed being Julie for a while while making the film in a way you know we, we as, a, as a director and co-writer you you kind of try to walk in the, in the shoes of your characters so, so I sympathize but I also see that she has to learn uh that time is not infinite she will have to experience loss before the story ends right. to find herself
0: and I was thinking of that old John Lennon lyric um life is what happens to you when you're busy making other plans that's great that's also scary right yes. that you're missing and she's, she she could be missing out on that do you, ever, do yeah, you?
2: Yeah, yeah. There's a great book um, called Missing Out mm-hmm.
0: uh,
2: well, by, by, a, by a British Um and it's basically dealing with that fact of, I mean it's popularly called now FOMO, Fear of Missing uh-huh. Out, but I, I think in a way what the book is talking about is how large proportion of our sense of self, of our, our sense of our own identity is about dreams and sort of parallel lives that we kind of believe we're going to end up having that we never have. And, and how much we don't talk about this. You know? We all walk around with a head full of ideas of, of tomorrow that we believe is kind of our life, but it will actually never be realized. We're
0: always chasing something that we think will be better while we're exactly.
2: actually in it. No, no, I really, it's an Adam's, Adam Phillips, I, it, okay. the guy who wrote it. So it's a missing out. Yeah. So, yeah. no, no, I take that to heart. I think oh. the John Lennon quote is good. And I, Another quote I've thought about recently is Søren uh, um, Kierkegaard, mm-hmm. the Danish philosopher, uh, who says that, you know, life can only be understood backwards when we're forced to live it forwards. And and it's that kind of that's what we all go through, you know. Mm-hmm. It's it's time. It has only one direction. And I, I've seen this struggle with people and it's it's complicated. And I I as a filmmaker, you know, you don't you try I try to stay away from having just strong opinions. I wanna trace human behavior. It's what I'm into. You know, try to observe and be compassionate about my characters. Mm-hmm. So there is a dialogue going on in this film between a man in his forties and a woman who's turning thirty and they are in a relationship and they are out of time, out of sync, bad timing, yeah. he wants a kid, she doesn't and I try to kind of show both perspectives hopefully with, with an insight you know and if people go to a bar afterwards and discuss that theme in their life I'm happy.
0: You actually wrote this movie with Renata in mind um, and she's just perfect for it but when you were showing it to her were you like oh my god I hope she's not, what the hell Joachim?
2: <laughs> I was very nervous. Because I'd worked with Renata 10 years ago on Oslo, August 31st, and I cast her in her first role ever in front of the camera, just straight out of theater school, or drama school. And um, she played a small part in that film, and I just thought she was remarkable. Uh, and I realized that, you know, oh, she's going to take off, she's going to be a big star. Mm-hmm. And then 10 years passed, and she did really great work in theater, but no one gave her a lead part in any feature film or TV show. So I was like, you know, what? of course I have to then yes. write something. I'm a huge fan. Well, she's fan. lost
0: to the world now. Yeah, yeah but, but would, it, so sure it was all joy it and
2: pleasure going to an actor and saying, you know, I will write the, uh, with Eskill, my co-writer, we have decided to, to, to write this um, this part for you. And, and that was joyful. And then, as you're, as you're pointing out, there comes a moment when she actually has to read it. <laughs> and we're kind of locked into this collaboration. But she was, at least she says now, she was super happy about it. She thought it was a great script. And she... Contributed. I, th- I we took her feedback very seriously, and I think she has also been a part of shaping this character mm-hmm. to to a large extent. So I'm, I'm I, I've been really grateful for the collaboration.
0: And I'm sure that you are in all these characters. You're There's there's sure. parts of you in all of them. But how are you in a relationship today?
2: H- how I am? Yeah. What? No, I th- I think I've come to a, a peace, more peaceful place mm-hmm. in my life. I'm in a I'm in a strong relationship. I feel I have a sense of home. Uh, I have a child now. I I feel that I'm in a good place and I'm grateful for it. I I can't say, honestly, it's always been like that. So, um, making this film has also been, in many ways, a way to find a more hopeful and compassionate place in myself creatively. I mean, 10 years ago, I made Oslo August 31st, which is quite a a bleak uh, and I believe honest perspective on how lost one can feel at times, you know. Um, But I've, the older I get, I also see people survive. I've I was part of a quite um, like a, an interesting underground environment in Oslo. I was a skateboarder, into punk, people from every corner of the city. And as I grew older in my twenties, I lost several friends to to drugs, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and also uh, I've seen people go through a lot of tough depression, and psychological turmoil and. But as I grow older, I also see hope. I've seen people survive. One of my best friends from skate when I skated is is he, he managed to quit heroin, which mm-hmm. is a remarkable task, and uh, has two kids now. You know, and and so I've also seen this hope. Have you this, learned
0: um, what it takes for those who survive something like that?
2: That's a. Uh, I think you need to open up to the others. Mm-hmm. You need to understand that you need to not be alone you need we need each other you know that's that's the that's the biggest thing and i and and i'm not saying that with any sense of judgment to those who who can't and it's a, it's a complicated question yes, but I've and, just, and, and, and been, it's a mystery I've to me been, as well no 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 of course that. of course <laughs> an honest question i'm glad to try to answer but i also think it's a mystery to me mm-hmm. sometimes a tragic or positive depending on the outcome mystery as to whom who are able to, to, to win those battles. Sometimes it's also about coincidence, unfortunately. You know, like luck, bad luck. Life is complicated. But I but I would say in regards to the worst person in the world that I, I feel going... When I went into the film with Eskil and with the actors and my team, I, I did a little... You know, we did a talk where we, we, we conveyed that um, as a creative person, it's easy uh, to... Think that oh we're losing our edge because we're showing something that's softer and more positive and more compassionate. But I think rather the opposite. I think we live in a time with a lot of strong opinions and a very very aggressive um, feeling around important issues. And I think art maybe then could counter it. We are dealing in the film with a lot of side plots with. Cancer culture, the environmental crises, and 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 we are dealing with the big question of mortality, of course, you know, and and so so the the question is then can could I make a more hopeful film about those mm-hmm.
0: things? I want to talk about another character in in the movie, and that's Oslo, um, mm-hmm. because the rom-com city is you know if you think about. Hi there, I'm Heather Drago, and I'm Sarah Saunders. skyline or the Empire State Building yeah. or, or you know the moon and Moonstruck I'm just trying hey, to think of things I mean, it's not real it's it's really magical or yeah. in my view it's I, heightened it's heightened and yeah. it's very much the sensibility of whatever's happening into the character hmm. the city is but it's so important tell me about building Oslo here
2: yeah I'll tell you something that I discovered Um I shot this film with a, a Danish cinematographer, Kasper Tuxen, who, who I admire. He's, he's wonderful. And he lives in Copenhagen, a flat city. There are no hills. And he looks up at buildings and walks on the flat ground. You know, And he comes to Oslo, and we're making this romantic film. And he says, like, wow, there's so many hills. I mean, Oslo is a valley. You know, It's a valley, actually, out, out towards a fjord. So you have the ocean and the mountains around it. So... He was like, oh, that's so wonderful. Like, let's use the hilly landscapes. And I said, yeah, well, great. I wrote the opening sequence to be on top of a hill. And she's looking down on the city as an existential moment. Like, that's iconic in Oslo, that we actually have these hills. You know, you don't need a tall building to look down on the city and ask yourself the question, what the hell am I going to do with my life here?' Yeah. And who
0: is my person down there? Yeah, yeah, I who down here is yeah. right for me, yeah. you know, in, <laughs> the, in, the,
2: in the kind of, in the... In the chase to to find your partner you know so I think I think that that's more than any building it's about the hills and you see throughout the film these moments of also as a romantic gesture at some point there's a kiss on top of the park in the middle of the city called Sanctanshaven where where they're embracing I've kissed someone there you know I'm trying to just chase my romantic feeling of the city.
0: I think it's one of, I I was thinking about this yesterday, I was reading a new interview with Paul Thomas Anderson oh, yeah. um, and his new movie is another movie that takes place in the San Fernando Valley where he's from and he was talking about, he gets all these questions, Will you make another movie about the San Fernando Valley and he said well to me it's comfort, it's joy and I know the taste and the smell. And I was thinking, that's what I felt watching your several of your movies about Oslo, because this is not the first one. It's a different one, but a uh-huh. first one. That you seem to know the taste and the smell of it.
2: Completely. It's funny. I actually have said the same thing <laughs> in interviews. <laughs> I'm glad you asked I'll me. Leave. No, um, it is that intimate relationship to a place that you describe, really. Taste mm. and smell is a wonderful metaphor for that kind of tactile sense of, oh, wait a minute, that street corner in the early morning when the light is right it's just wonderfully romantic or well that's a really sad place that bench over there lets you you know you know these things you've, you've lived in the city and it illustrates uh, sort of an internal uh, vocabulary of a city you know that you have if you know it that intimately so I understand completely where he's coming from
0: because I think the interesting part is when, the, when it's achieved the amount of success that you have maybe it would be oh I do this in Manhattan or in Paris but the thing that you do with Oslo here is what makes it really the magical international feel that maybe it wouldn't have had if it wasn't a city you could taste.
2: No I think I I hope you're right I mean I I grew (laughs) up uh, feeling cities from other filmmakers Mm -hmm. there is the there is the New York of Martin Scorsese but there's also the New York of Woody Allen or Spike Lee Mm -hmm. and they're quite different but they feel very subjective and you're taken into a world of an abstracted version of the city I'm sure but, it, uh, but it becomes a place a mythology and and these filmmakers and you, you have several examples obviously in Paris and, and other cities too but these filmmakers develop a mythology of the city like their own point of view that expands and I guess you know uh, Paul Thomas Anderson probably has a San Fernando Valley universe mm-hmm. where, that he can use It's you can choose whether you want to leave the next part in or edit obviously okay. it's up to you but I made um, a documentary uh, a couple of years ago uh, in collaboration with Karl-Ove Knausgaard, the Mm. Norwegian writer, about Edvard Munch, the Norwegian painter. And Munch uh, had a place called Oskarstram, which is south of Oslo by the shore, where a lot of his uh, most famous paintings um, take place in the woods towards the shoreline. You will have this this, uh, place that he keeps painting over and over again. And the irony is most of those paintings were made in the period in the 1890s when he was in Berlin or he was traveling Europe. Wow. But it, it was his internal um. kind of um, place, his stage to stage the great dramas of life and death and love and That's loss. And, and and that place, we went there and filmed for the documentary and you can clearly see it's there, but it becomes... Um, Monk's internal place that he shares with us and in a strange way going through that process of making movies I, I realized that I'm I have a di- dichotomy between on one moment. I'm reporting I'm documenting I'm seeing a city developed and it's out of my control and that's the fun thing as, as, as opposed to painting that that you will see in Oslo August 31st at some point I show a building site where in the worst person in the world ten years later you will see the building there. It's actually the Monk Museum, ironically. Oh
0: enough. wow! So, <laughs> so, so you know, I'll yeah. Start. So, okay.
2: so you know that that development is is out of my control. On the other hand, I'm sure it's very subjective, mm-hmm. and I'm filtering in just those things that I care about. So it's it's a it's a mix in cinema, I think.
0: Interesting, and I recognize that as someone who's moved and lived in very different places, it is sort of a muscle memory certain things that you have from places. I think so. Yeah. I think so. But you've called this the end of your Oslo trilogy, but you will be making more films.
2: Yeah, Oslo, I must. Wasn't that maybe I should yeah. call it the beginning yes, of please. a series? Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, that's 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 kind of you to say. I I, I think for some reason this is a, like a link to my two first films, *Reprise* and *Oslo*, August thirty first. But working with Anders Dahl Nielsen Lee again and seeing him now age through a, a time span of fifteen years through these three films has been kind of a gift. Yes. Not only is he a wonderful actor, but he's also aging as a human being again this documentation out of my control that Mm -hmm. cinema just presents to us as an opportunity you know which is wonderful And, uh, and he said to me after our Cannes premiere with great receptions and we drank some champagne before our next interview and we're kind of exhausted and happy. He said, ah, you, shouldn't we do this again in 10 years? So I said, <laughs> of course, of course. You know, so who knows? You're not
0: over. I really want to talk about my favorite set piece in the movie, the unfaithful set piece. Yeah, yeah, let's talk about that. And they are seriously unfaithful. <laughs> I mean, to me, it's just so intimate and sexy and, and they're having so much fun yeah. and they're not doing what one sort of by the book calls, you know, they're not having sex. This is just even worse.
2: Yeah, yeah. That's no, a good question. So for those who haven't seen the film, yeah. maybe I should describe, it Please was one do. of the early ideas I had, which, which put, her on the, put us as writers on the track of the romantic comedy. It's really what, you, you, what you call as sort of the, the meet-cute. How do two characters that obviously have great chemistry and the potential of romance meet in a film? How do you get the audience engaged in that? So I had this whole idea lying around about like, what if some two people who were both kind of happy in their relationships admitted to an attraction and then started at a party, a little bit drunk and tipsy, ask each other, where is the limit? What can we do without being unfaithful? And how far can we go? And they start exploring it. Is it about sharing an intimate secret that no one else knows? Is it about smelling each other? What if I hurt you? What if I bite your arm real hard? Is that transgressive? Or, you know, so they start playing this game and uh, it's kind of a lot big scene in the film. And, and I think that Herbert uh, Nordrum and Renate Reinser are just doing a great job. But they, they have a really great chemistry in that scene and uh, and I'm kind of in the traditional romantic comedy, I'm, I'm proud about that meet cute. I, I think love it's, it's a that fun meet cute because
0: yeah. you realize that these people will—they won't just have sex and then forget about each other. That's exactly. what you realize. Exactly, and I
2: think—I think—in as you were pointing out very mm-hmm. accurately, it's in in, a, in an adverted way, it's actually the least sexy thing in life, or you know, maybe not in life, hopefully not, but at least in movies, is to see the consummation of sex. It's not necessarily the actual act is not necessarily sexy. It's everything around it. So that we're kind of playing a cinematic game with the audience there as well. She's, she's looking throughout the film desperately for connection. Connection with herself, connection with another person, connection with a sense of purpose. To be quite frank, that's, that's the premise of the film. Mm-hmm. And uh, love is one of those, you know, one of those gateways to connection. And she's, that's what the film is dealing with, like how, hard and self-sabotaging we can get sometimes when we try to get close to someone and both the tragedy but also the humor of it and how silly it can be
0: um i hope this is not too spoiler but so tell me if you think it is mm. um you were mentioning before you were saying that someone who survives something in, mm. in young, that they have uh, they need connection mm. uh, the ending of the she seems to also need time not to be in a relationship
2: Yeah, I I will say this, uh, without spoiling too much, that I think the title, The Worst Person in the World, is also about this sense of self-doubt, maybe the lack of self-love. And I think the journey of of growing up for Julie is, um, is also finding some peace with herself and finding acceptance that she is good enough with herself somehow, without spoiling too much, you know, that it's it's a complicated ride that we're taking the audience through. But I think you're right in saying that she... I, I tried to find a way of explaining this simply, but it's like... Um, a journey from trying to become into being mm-hmm. and and i think that's about some sense of acceptance of some sort so i hope the film lives up to that now we're using all these big words yeah, yeah let's <laughs> <I hope laughs> I do. so let's talk about something
0: completely superficial what how are you with the oscars everything that's yeah. coming up what are you expecting what what's i mean after this covid year particularly yeah i know it's,
2: it's it's we had an incredible experience at Cannes because it started there and Usually when I edit the film, this is my fifth film, uh, feature film, um, we show it to a few hundred people and do some test screenings and talk to them about what they get, what they don't understand and so forth. This time we weren't allowed to do that. So we end up doing screenings only with five people at a time. So I didn't have the opportunity at all before Cannes to sit in an audience and experience the film with other people. I come into a room at Cannes, you know, the big, big room, 2,300 people watching the film for the first time with Anders and some of the other actors. You know, it's, it's uh, and Renata had already seen it, thank God. So there's a little <laughs> bit less pressure and she was happy about it. But, and then there's a standing ovation at the end and we're getting embraced. And everyone probably also felt there was a return of, of all the films of Cannes, of cinema, and the feeling that we were so happy to be together in a room together watching films again. And, and we were crying. And seriously, a lot of people were just very moved by just the experience of screening again. And since then, it's, it's done wonderfully in France, where it's released, and in Norway, way beyond any other film I've done. So now the Oscar buzz is happening, and we're, we're grateful for the opportunity. I think from here on out, anything that will happen to the film is just like icing on the cake. We're very pleased with it. Looking forward to, to releasing it in Sweden and Italy in the upcoming weeks. so fingers crossed.
0: Oh, congratulations. Thank you so much for taking your time Thank with you. me. Thank you.
2: This was a good talk.
0: Oh, was good. <laughs> I'm happy that we could. <laughs> thank you so much to Joachim Trier. The worst person in the world is rolling out all over Europe and Sweden. It's premiering on November 19th. Um, it just premiered at the AFI Fest in Los Angeles and should be rolling out all over ahead of the Academy Awards and award season. We wish Joachim Trier and the whole gang lots of luck going forward. And thank you so much for listening to Pop Culture Confidential. Please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.
1: History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction,